Super Talk Mississippi media production. If you're feeling anxious about your investments with all the economic volatility and chaos in Washington, tune in to Super Talk Jackson on Wednesdays from 9 to 10 a.m. and Sundays from 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. for Element Wealth Radio with Jeremy Nelson. Learn more at myelementwealth.com. This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on a rather chilly, uh, precipitous. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word or not, but it seems to. Work. I think it is, but I don't know if it means that. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, uh, how about a precipitation laden? How about that? Soggy. Okay, it's wet. Oh, yeah. Jeez. But thankfully, it seems like it's going to go ahead and get out of here at least for a day. Yeah, and then back on Thursday, right? That's correct, and, and then, that's the front that is bringing the Arctic freeze. Jeez. I believe you describe it as an Arctic blast. Oh, yeah. The weather folks always like to use that phraseology, don't they? Arctic blast! And it depends on where you are in the Magnolia State, but it very well could be the coldest it's been for you in the last five to ten years. In a whole long time. In a minute or two. Yeah, it's going to be cold. That's what we hear. So, speaking of phraseology, (laughs) do you remember several months ago we discussed Stanford University, the IT department up there at Stanford, how they had come up with uh, a a new language guide, if you will. Their goal being to eliminate harmful language from their websites and all of their software tools, all of their systems, any interaction that someone in the university environment would have with their IT systems. They want to eliminate any references or citations of so-called, quote, harmful language. Are we just not tied up like a pretzel, as they say, obsessed over words? Over feelings. Feelings, right. So... Who are they to decide what is harmful language? Because a word to one person may be harmful and perfectly fine, maybe even positive to another. Behold an example. Okay? Among the words that the scholars at Stanford 
have identified as harmful is American. The word American. They recommend that people use instead U.S. citizen. They're rash- pretty sure someone would say that's harmful, too. <laughs> exactly right. That is true. You see... It's the slippery slope of easily offended. It, it's a, it's a zero-sum game. I oh, use, yeah. You can't win that deal. You it's because it's a game it. designed by and for idiots. <laughs> they said that the problem with using the word American in referring to people from the United States only is that it insinuates that the U.S. is the most important country in America. Well, it is, you fools! <laughs> oh, gosh. If you, the kowtowing, the genuflecting, the worshiping at the altar of wokeness is absolutely got this country tied up in knots. Well, the index, just so you'll know, Rhino, wants you to know that there are 42 countries in America. <laughs> and I haven't done the math, but I bet if you add up all their GDPs and compare it to our GDP, we still win. <laughs> you can't make it up. Have you ever heard anybody say, I'm offended when you call me an American or use? So in this context, it's the possible use of American in their IT systems, like on their websites or their any other digital content, their tools, for example. So other terms that they have decided that are harmful. And by the way, there are numerous sections in the guide. Here are the sections. You'll love this. Ableist, ageism, colonialism, culturally appropriative, gender-based, imprecise language. American is in that category, you should know. Institutionalized racism, person first, violent and additional consideration. So, another term in the, what's it called, imprecise language, <laughs> I can't even say it, it's so nutty, imprecise language is abort, the term abort, which offers, the guide does, the replacement terms cancel or end because of moral concerns about abortion. Child prostitute. <laughs> Who's even running around saying that? Is replaced with a child who has been trafficked. <laughs> so the person is not defined by just one characteristic. And Karen, you know what that is, of course, <laughs> is replaced with demanding or entitled white woman. <laughs> The white, of course, capitalized. You know, we do that these days. We capitalize the races. What is that for? What does that mean? Gosh. The, uh, the ableist section advises people to use accessible parking instead of handicapped parking. How about this one? 
died by suicide instead of committed suicide. An anonymous review instead of blind review. You're familiar, of course, with the phrase tone deaf. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Don't say that. Might hurt somebody's feelings. Just like you said. The guide instead suggests using the term unenlightened. <laughs> no, unenlightened is more closely tied to ignorant. <laughs> oh. And wouldn't they call someone tone deaf for not following their fruity guide? <laughs> fruity guide, I love that. You can't say that. <laughs> oh, pardon me. Bump the mic there with my gesturing. And a person with a substance abuse disorder is to replace addict. Who dreams up this stuff? Who spends time on this garbage? People with more money than sense and uh, more free time than I have. <laughs> and of course, no surprise here, be gone with the words freshman, fireman, and congresswoman. Can't even say congresswoman. Well, yeah, because they can't define what a woman is. Correct. You see, gender binary language, and that would be an example of gender binary language, does not include everyone. We've right, we left out the infinitesimally small percentage of people that are crazy. <laughs> Forgive me for not catering to the crazies. <laughs> oh, gosh. How about, how about the term black hat, black mark, black sheep? These are negative connotations of the word black. And instead Pretty sure black hat hackers and white hat hackers don't care. Correct. <laughs> and don't use the word grandfathered. Instead, use legacy status. I know that's what you're going to do. <laughs> because of roots in the grandfather clause adopted by southern states to deny voting rights to blacks. Who thinks about that? This is tearing this country apart. Because while one of what I thought was most prestigious institutions in our country, if it's not on the planet... It's filled with people educated above their means of understanding. Meanwhile, our most ardent foes, like in China, you know what they're doing? Teaching quantum computing. And we're worried about grandfathered. Oh, gosh, I get fired up about this stuff. I don't think we're paying enough attention to this. It's sweeping the country, folks. And ground zero for it is these educational institutions of higher learning that are teaching our future leaders. They're brainwashing them with this garbage. Oh, gosh. Homeless person should be referred to as a person without housing. We're stepping aside. That's homeless. <laughs> exactly. It's the way the English language works. <laughs> We've got Christina Dent, founder and president of Ended for Good at 1105. Staller Brown, state director of AFP at 1205. We're coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Well, I wasn't sure that Stevie Wonder actually had a uh, Christmas tune. You find them all, man. You're digging deep. On the ceasefire text line, Carol in Starkville says, the ones who want to control your free speech, all in the name of inclusion and avoiding offending, what'd you say, hurting folks' feelings. Oh, yeah. It's the way we roll these days. We're obsessed with it. You couldn't possibly keep up with all that stuff. You couldn't do it. Remember when... And this is why they do it. It's to get a false sense of moral superiority because I'm following the rules. <laughs> I'm checking the boxes. I you agree. aren't. So I'm better. <laughs> it's, that's exactly right. I'm better than you. That is exactly what all this crap's about. Look no further than the open borders. That's all about I'm better than you. I'm for all these people just pouring across the border. Title 42, the Trump-era, pandemic-era policy, scheduled to end. Right now, there's a hold on it, placed on ending the policy by the Supreme Court. Not sure how long that's going to last. The Democrats, honestly, folks, it was Chief Justice Roberts, by the way, who says it's going to remain in place they f- temporarily froze the order. It's just amazing that the Democrats continue to tell us that there's not a problem at the border. We've got a president who won't go see it. I actually have, do you have this, the montage? You, do you, did you see that that I sent you? Well, we can maybe get that going. It's just amazing what they're saying about this border not being a problem. So a federal district court vacated the policy last not, uh, last month, saying it was arbitrary and capricious, said it would remain in effect until December 21. But Roberts, he says the court wants to act quickly. He asked the Biden administration by, to respond by 5 p.m. today. Today. I don't think they will. And this would be to an emergency appeal that was filed by a number of Republican-led states. And so Justice Roberts said, okay, we're going to keep it in place. See what you guys say. You got that? Yeah, here we go. Listen to this, folks. And simply because people don't see the president at the border doesn't mean that he's not working. Oh, yeah. Well, why doesn't he go to the border? He was just in Arizona. Why wasn't it worth his time? Well, you have to remember, Margaret, when the president travels, it's not like you or I jumping on an airplane and getting off and going to our destination. Everything comes to a halt. Is that why he didn't go? Well, I can't speak to why he has or has not gone. I'm just speaking to the fact that it's a bit more disruptive for the president of the United States to travel than you or I, but what the president has done is continue to lean in on this immigration issue. Are you still going to allow LAPD and sanitation officers to do these sweeps of encampments? No, these are not sweeps at all. This is getting people to move on their own, but then after the person leaves, sanitation is absolutely going to have to be there. No question about it. But this is not coercing people. This is not 
ticketing people or incarcerating people. This is moving people from tents to hotels or motels. And when you are uh, about to face a Republican-controlled House that's vowed to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. Yeah, well, first of all, that's it's, it's, it's an unfair charge against Ali Morcus. That's Manchin. The gentleman is, is, is very competent. He can do a good oh, job. Oh, yeah, competent. They just need to unleash him, let him do his job. As you said, the Biden administration is preparing for this on Wednesday. So do you expect everything to just go smoothly, given what Gavin Newsom has said, for these first couple of weeks when they do expect 18,000 people a day crossing the southern border? Yeah, uh, again, we will, uh, uh, I'm sure, see the departments and agencies make every effort to uh, uh, maintain the, the safety, the orderliness, uh, the fairness of uh, people seeking asylum or you know, having other determinations that they're coming for other reasons. Or So it's past time for Title 42 to be gone. The administration has made it clear that while Title 42 is technically lifted, they are ready to put in place uh, a, a system at the border that keeps things fairer, uh, but also more orderly and more safe. Today, your own Governor Gavin Newsom told ABC News that the immigration system will break when Title 42 is lifted. He said your state is not prepared, that sites are already at capacity. So what do you really expect? Look, and, not, and what are the preparations I'm that you... <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. So, so I'm not suggesting that it's not going to be a challenge. I don't, I don't hear a lot about immigration from voters except people in the far right that, that always want to gain political um, advantage by talking about it. Should the administration extend Title 42, do you think the border is secure enough to possibly handle an influx in migrants that we just see? Well, the, uh, to secure our border is our responsibility. Uh, we always can do more. So say enough by what standard. But I, the courts have spoken on that subject. Uh, it, there's not going to be anything happening in this Congress as we go out because it is, it, we've been through the course now. I do like talking about immigration, though, because it is the constant reinvigoration of America. What we're seeing is Republicans continue <laughs> uh, to move forward with political stunts. Many of them are doing this, uh, and we continue to see this for over the last several months. So the president has done the work. He secured record funding. And so, look, uh, what, the, what the American people should know is that we have taken the steps. We're taking the step to prepare for what is uh, for uh, for when uh, Title 42 is lifted uh, next week, uh, and you saw that from the Department of Homeland Security, S Secretary Mayorkas was very clear about that. He laid out their six-point plan when he was uh, at the border just a couple of days ago, and this is an administration that has taken this very immigration. We've talked to so many Border Patrol agents and leaders who are just really worried and anxious about the possibility of Title 42 ending next week. Big picture: What is the administration doing right now to get ready for that? So a couple of things that I want to lay out, and I kind of laid this out before, but um, I want to re reiterate it here, is that, um, uh, you know, we're doing the work. We're going to do this in a safe and hu humane way. And we'll, we will have more uh, to share on the proposed preparedness next week before the December uh, 21st uh, date. But uh, look, we also need Congress to act. It is important uh, that they deliver the resources we requested for the border security and management. Uh, they need to pass the comprehensive immigration reform ah, uh, that we have ah. put forth on day one. The president put forth a comprehensive uh, reform plan mm. that dealt with protecting uh, for dream protecting for dreamers, cutting down uh, the asylum. Uh so, 
First, it was, I believe, Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, right? He was the one who said, I'm just not hearing it. These are far-right people that are talking about this, right? It's just not an issue. And what you see and hear there from... In fairness, it likely isn't much of an issue in Ohio. Right. Probably not hearing it a lot. Why the heck are they asking a senator from Ohio about it? So he can get some limelight there and exposure. So, of course, Corinne Jean-Pierre, whom I believe is the worst ever White House press secretary. Uh, so She gives Spicy a run for his money. <laughs> exactly. Good old Sean Spicer. Oh, he was terrible as well. So she, uh, she says there, it's just not a problem, and the secretary has a six-point plan. And that plan is not to stem the tide of flow across the border. No, it it's to give them cell phones correct. so they can check in, to pay yes. for hotel rooms, to give them food and clothing. care. Yes, exactly. That's the plan. We've got it funded. Not funding for Homeland Security or ICE or Border uh, Patrol agents to uh, handle the load and send folks back and guard them from and protect them from just entering the country. No. It's to give them all these benefits paid for by the taxpayers. That's their plan. So they can get more voters, period. And don't forget, folks, when the census is taken, it doesn't just count citizens. It counts inhabitants. It counts residents. And that figures into lots of uh, different issues and policies at the federal level, including money, money allocated. It's not based on the number of citizens. It's based on the number of people. It's so disingenuous for them to speak as if this is just not an issue. Pay no attention to those empirical videos and images and reports from people on the ground there. And what about this nonsense about why the president can't go? Well, it's disruptive. Oh, it's it's real. That's, that's, that's about the weakest excuse you could use. I completely agree. You're right there, but you can't go because it might be disruptive. Coming right back on Midday, stay with us. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Hang on the mistletoe. How much fun it's gonna be together This Christmas The fireside's blazing bright We're caroling Back in the Element Well Studios Midday, Super Talk Mississippi The Dow up a mere 10 points this morning and that is because it's up, it's been down, it's been hopping around like the old rhino kangaroo. And that's because the Japan Central Bank, they kind of surprised the world when they increased rates. And Japan is 
had a very dubbish posture for some time, but the central bank increased rates. They, too, are even concerned about inflation. Their bigger issue is, has been deflation. They've been uh, implementing monetary policy to stimulate growth. It's, a, it's interesting dynamics in Japan with the population aging. And that's taking its toll on the economy, and thus the central bank has kept rates around zero for quite some time. Even negative interest rates in some institutions, meaning you don't want to keep your money there because they charge you for it, and they want you to go spend it. That's on top of all the crazy fit. Like, if you ever think your bank has crazy fees, just look up the kind of fees they charge at Japanese banks. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You could have two accounts with the same bank. And usually, in America, you just, hey, tell her, can I move money from this account to that account? Sure. In Japan, it's like, all right, that'll be $200. Exactly. Yeah. They, they want that money out, circulating in the economy, not in the banks, not transferred between accounts or between banks. So the 10-year bond yields surged past their prior ceiling when... Overnight, the Bank of Japan announced it would allow benchmark bond yields to trade as high as 0.5%. 0.5 from zero, right? They don't want you parking your money in bonds. They want it spent. So the yen and the bank shares surged in the Japan, Japan uh, uh, the Japanese market, the Nikkei, sold off, and that reverberated around the planet, honestly, and that's got investors skittish looking for direction. In simplest terms, it's really tough on countries like Japan that are heavily reliant on imports if their currency is weak compared to the dollar. That's right. Just costs so much more. Right. To import goods takes more yen to purchase goods made in the U.S. based on the American dollar as a cost basis. Yeah, no doubt. And that's been a problem. So investors are scratching their heads, trying to figure it out, and the market is hopping all over the dang place. Most economists do believe all that I've heard in the last few days to expect that, that we will endure very tumultuous economic times in the coming six to nine months. That's kind of where everybody's hanging their hat. Now, most are saying that, yeah, we think that this uh, hawkish interest rate policy being employed by the Fed is going to curb inflation, which has been incredibly sticky, and that will, and that essentially is going to trigger us and drop us into a recession. You're going to see more contraction, more job loss. That's what they want. And that should, in fact, bring inflation down. After that, the good news is the Fed will likely pivot, meaning they're going to start to decrease interest rates. And then it's off to the races with the market. So it's been a sustained bull market. Now we're enduring a bear market and the bear market will flip around. That's what most believe. Third quarter, fourth quarter of next year, 
And uh, again, we'll see a, a bear market that will drag stocks to the positive with them. That is the expectation at this point, but we shall see. There are numerous articles. We talked about this on the program, Rhino. You know, we had uh, Douglas Carswell for, from MCPP in yesterday, and he was discussing their uh, top priority for their organization is to eliminate the income tax, as we tried to do last year. But there are numerous articles and reports coming out of economists that are warning about how a recession might impact revenues at the state level. Clearly, revenues at the federal level have been gangbuster, highest in history, and that's because they pumped all this money into the economy. And that has um, increased profitability by the private, in the private sector at the corporate level and even in the small, mid-sized businesses that are structured as pass-through entities, meaning all their income flows to the individual. So we've seen collections rise precipitously. And this is the thing you won't see the Democrats say under the Trump tax cuts. You know, we're going to two and two trillion dollars. It's irresponsible. That's why we're running these deficits. Well, no, revenues are up substantially. Record revenues. However, the last uh, two months, which would be the first two months of the fiscal year, they are coming in quite a bit lower than the same period, two-month period last year, and that's because we're starting to filter through all this helicopter money out of the economy. But there could be a day of reckoning in the future for state governments with respect to revenue collections because they just got so much dang money from the Fed, either directly or by virtue of helicopter payments into the bank accounts of individuals who went out and, and uh, spent that money, largely did, and that increases sales taxes, which increases prof- profits for the sellers of those goods and services they used the helicopter money to buy, and that increases individual income taxes. I mean, that's the story in a nutshell right here of what's going on. But it's, it's worth keeping an eye on something else. A rhino that is of concern that was reported is what economists call a rating, rating, literally is the term they use, of 401k accounts, hardship loans. There is a provision that allows you to do that. And so those are up rather dramatically, and and it's really because... This is an all-time high, by the way. This is uh, reported by Vanguard, the big investment house. They said it's a sign of households feeling the pinch of inflation. Don't have enough disposable income to make ends meet. And uh, about 1% of workers participating in a 401k plan took a hardship distribution in October. And Vanguard tracks about 5 million savers that have 401k plans. So it's, it's just an indicator that kind of foretells of the health of the economy going forward when folks are having to dig into what is supposed to be their retirement accounts. 
on top of the reporting that there are people using credit cards and maxing them out just for buying groceries. That's way up. And there you're right. They're using that to buy the staples, the necessities of life, not the more um, discretionary luxuries of life. Yeah, that's no doubt a problem. So food prices, rent, and a whole bunch of other consumer items have risen historically. And folks are withdrawing their retirement savings to pay for that. But this government is oblivious to this. They just, they, they both don't understand it. I really don't believe they do. You think Joe Biden understands all this crap? No. Negative. Not in the slightest. So it's a combination of not understanding it, him just going out and, and parroting what his handlers tell him to say, that things are great, folks. It's just not true. And so this is a, um, you're right, though, Vanguard also reported what you just talked about, Rhino, is fast rising credit card balances, a declining personal savings rate, and borrowing for, from their retirement accounts. I mean, that's kind of a combination of activities, of developments that is a cause for concern. And it's all because of this persistently high inflation. So what does the government do? They're about to pass a $1.7 trillion spending bill, which is about $200 billion more than the last one in the prior year, which was about $200 billion than the, more than the prior one. There's just no interest in reining it in. And they're going to ram this through. By the way, yesterday, Rhino, you remember I said they, they would um, compile this omnibus bill, it'd be 2,000 pages, and they'd have about uh, 3,000 pages, I said. They'd have two hours to read it. It's out. It's 4,100 pages. 4,100! And they're trying to get a vote on this by Friday, because that's when the continuing resolution expires. In essence, the government runs out of money. 4,100 pages! With $45 billion for Ukraine in it. I know our audience would be interested to know about that. Coming right back on Midday. Stay with us. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right. We are back. On Super Talk Mississippi. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight, we're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. Gone away is the bluebird, it'll stay. I know one thing, if it precipitates this weekend, we'll have a winter wonderland, won't we? Thankfully, the weatherman is still showing right around 0% chance of precipitation. Just cold. Right? Which that'll be enough to deal with. Yeah. Brutal cold. Yeah. Bring your pets in. Right? Pets, pipes, and plants. The three Ps. Now, the northern part of the country, the upper Midwest, the northeast, record snow, I think, for this time of year predicted, right? Some parts getting six to eight inches. Man. Oh, I'm sure that won't have any impact on air travel. No. Hmm. 
Mike in Oxford says, I would love to borrow a few million dollars with a negative interest rate. Sure you would, Mike. Only problem is they won't loan it to you. Yeah, that's the way that works. They're not loaning any money. They're just charging you for keeping it there, for parking it in the bank. So we should point out that at 1 o'clock today at uh, Humphrey Coliseum, the Mississippi State University, there is a public memorial service for the recently departed coach Mike Leach. Just wanted to pass that on. I believe that gets underway at 1 o'clock, Humphreys Coliseum. It's, uh, it's surreal, isn't it, Rhino, when you think about a university having a memorial service, a funeral service like that, for a sitting coach. I mean, that's so rare. So sad. And I'm sure they'll do a fantastic job. You know they will. And gosh, such a colorful character with so much history. You would need like days, really, to review and reflect upon his life, his contributions. And we're grateful that he made a stop here in the state of Mississippi. No doubt about that. So, If you'd like to watch, it will be broadcast on the SEC Network and uh, also be available on the Mississippi State University Facebook page. Yes, thank you. Appreciate that. On the C Spire text line, he and his handlers are probably scared to go, says Dan in the Hattiesburg, referring to our president and the montage we shared where... His surrogates say, no, he can't go to the border. It's too disruptive. You know, he can't travel like everybody else. How many times has he been to Delaware? Like 46? By the way, reports indicate that 5 million have crossed the border since he's been in office. If Title 42 is allowed to expire, experts forecast, predict that it would be over six million a year. A year! We can't handle it. We're not set up for it. And anytime they're questioned, the Biden administration, any representatives from the Biden administration, do you think this may be because you've essentially informed the world the border's open? The border's not open! He never said that! Right. Then how come whenever they ask anybody coming over the border why you're coming, it's President said we could. Yeah, and he did in the campaign, as a matter of fact. In twenty in the campaign of twenty nineteen d- during the uh one of the not it wasn't a town hall, one of the d- debates. One of the debates. He was questioned about it. Yeah, it's not who we are. We let people in, they're seeking asylum. Of course, all you have to do is show up and say, I'm here for asylum. I mean it's not like there's any vetting of that. You had sitting Congress people going south of the border to explain the asylum loophole to those trying to cross illegally. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You mean to coach them on it? Oh, yeah. AOC was one of them. <sighs> and she's a blithering idiot to begin with, but that's not a really good look. Hey, sitting congressperson, let's go south of the border and teach people how to break the law. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, it's, it's maddening. There's no doubt about it. And I don't think anything will be done. You, you made the comment that Senator Sherrod Brown of the great state of Ohio, well, I'm not hearing it from anybody, but you know what? It's coming. With this, this many, this kind of a surge, 
everywhere. And when it affects them personally, they'll change. That's my view. Right now, it's out of sight, out of mind, really not impacting them. They got their cushy gig. They can spout all these platitudes and appear to be, like you said, I care more than you do. It's not a function of caring. It's just a function of what makes sense, what's fair, what's practical. We never talk about what's fair to law-abiding Americans. Ever. They're, they're demonized, law-abiding Americans. Uh, we just we praise the, the criminals. We, <laughs> we laud those who break the law. And we victimize, or excuse me, demonize uh, those who don't. It's upside down. It's crazy. We've got Christina Dent, founder and president of End It For Good, in the studios when we come back after the news break. Stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays, live from the Element Well Studios. We thank you so much for joining us tomorrow. And don't forget, tomorrow we're going to be on location at Carter Jewelers for a remote tomorrow and Friday. Hope they got the heater working in that place on Friday, huh? It's going to need it. It's going to be a little cold. Uh, joining us now, Christina Dent, founder and president of End It For Good. So, Christina, I'm going to ask you again, uh, because you never know whenever you come on who's listening, who's not. Tell us exactly what the organization does, End It For Good. We are a Mississippi-based nonprofit, 501c3, and we invite people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. So we're looking at drug policy, everything from production, distribution, consumption, addiction, all of that in how can we reduce harm to people who are struggling with that, to their families, to the broader community. So whether or not you're using drugs or if you've never used drugs, we want a world where there's less harm related to drugs in it. And that's what our whole mission is. Gotcha. So uh, we've got the session coming up, and I know you, you advocate for such policy with our lawmakers. And we've got the session uh, less than a couple, two weeks away from today. Exactly, right? I did that right? I think so. Yeah, January the 3rd. They'll be convening. What would you like to accomplish? And before, it's kind of a backdrop to that. Uh, you provided me with a couple of cut sheets here uh, that explain what is drug checking. So, And it's very informative uh, with respect to especially fentanyl and, and the, the, the ravaging that's done on our country, for sure. Now, like the number one killer of young people, right in our country, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Really I'm not sure what the age range mm -hmm. is, yeah. but uh, and and a lot of folks do it 
uh, un- they ingest this substance unsuspecting. Right. They're buying drugs off the internet, or they got it from a friend who got it from someone they know that's selling some yeah. pills. And half the time they think it's a, a legal pill because you can make pills with a pill press that look exactly like um, their legal counterparts. And so they don't have any idea that it's contaminated and it's actually far more potent than they think it is. Okay, so there's some drug checking technologies that have mm-hmm. come onto the scene. And uh, the cut sheets you handed me explain those. Tell us about that. Yeah, so probably the most popular one of those is called fentanyl testing strips. So these are legal or decriminalized in 31 states, and they're basically a little strip of paper that um, you can take a little bit of the powder of whatever drug you're about to use. You dissolve it in water. You dip the strip into it, and within two minutes it will give you one line if there's fentanyl in that substance, two lines if there's not. So it is just a, a quick easy, simple way for someone who's about to use a drug to know, is there fentanyl in this? And research has shown that people who who use fentanyl testing strips, 45% of them use smaller amounts hmm. of the drug, hmm. and 42% of them use slower to avoid overdose. And hmm. so it, it helps people to, to make less risky choices related to their drug use if they have access to these. And they're less than a dollar a strip. So they're, it's cheap. Um, it's an easy way to do that. But they right now, Mississippi's drug paraphernalia law um, is very broad, and any kind of testing devices would fall under that. Um, so it's just it's too gray for people really to be able to use them safely here without being uh, potentially caught and arrested for having drug paraphernalia when really a fentanyl testing trip is just a way to to figure out, you know, are you about to, to use a drug that's contaminated with fentanyl? So, okay, so it would be uh, categorized as drug paraphernalia or yeah. it, it might yes, have it, charges? Yes, it there's not a, yes, there's not a carve-out for something like this where we can say, mm. hey, this is not, you're not going to be arrested just okay. because you are trying to stay alive. So are these available over-the-counter in a, in a drugstore? How does it work? Um, they can be. So in, in other states, sometimes they're um, actually the, the governmental agencies that are over their addiction crisis or overdose crisis um, provide those for okay. people. They use some of their grant funding money um, to to use them. Sometimes they're given out by like community mental health centers. Sometimes they're provided by nonprofits that are working on ways to reduce harm to people, help people stay alive. Um, you think about even in Mississippi, uh, a, a prime place for something like this would be Moore's Bike Shop in Hattiesburg. So uh, James Moore lost his son to an overdose, including fentanyl, a couple of years ago. Hmm. He's owned a bike shop in Hattiesburg for decades, and he decided that he wanted to um, begin giving out Narcan, the opioid overdose reversal medication. Hmm. So he was able to um, to get that through uh, the Department of Mental Health and to be able to provide that for anyone that came into his store. They could say, hey, can I have some Narcan? He could train them on it and be able to dispense that to them. So for people who maybe are using drugs that they're buying illegally or maybe for parents who don't really want anyone else to know their child is struggling, it was a very um, – someone like him is a great connection point. They might not go into a medical clinic or they might not go to a government agency and say, hey, can I access Narcan or fentanyl testing strips or something mm-hmm. like that? Um, 
but they will go to someone in the community that they trust. And so there are great kind of connection points for people like him. He's been doing Narcan distribution um, for years. And so we, we want that to be able to continue. There's been some, um, some changes to that. But uh, those kinds of things in other states, especially, there's lots of different ways that these can get out into the community in a way that they're actually getting to the people who, who need to use them. So is it as simple as we just need to essentially amend statute such that uh, these testing strips are not characterized or categorized, I should say not characterized, categorized as paraphernalia under the law? Yes. And so there's a couple of different ways to do that. So some states have just said fentanyl testing strips are legal now. Um, Pennsylvania actually, I think, did something really forward thinking. They just changed their law and they said not only are fentanyl testing strips going to be legal, but we're going to allow for any testing technology for any drug, not just fentanyl. You can get testing technologies for methamphetamines, cocaine, things like that. Um, And also any new technologies that come out, not just strips. So there's a company out of Florida that has developed um, testing wipes. So instead of having to have a powdered substance that you dissolve in water, you use a wipe, you literally wipe the pill or you wipe the surface. So think about law enforcement versus responders who are getting somewhere and they don't know what is this powder I am seeing. They can use a wipe, they can wipe it, it changes color immediately if it is positive for whatever substance that wipe is um, designed to to tell you about. So those aren't commercially available yet. They've just been developed. They're being tested by the law enforcement agencies that are actually in the community where the the company that produces them is. Um, But it's amazing. You can go online and, and watch a video of it. It's incredible to watch this little wipe. They swipe it across. It turns pink immediately. Cocaine, positive. I'll be darned. And so it would be great for us to um, to think about kind of those broader things, not just fentanyl testing strips, but if there's a way for something like a wipe to be accessible for us not to have to go back and change the law again to say, here's the new technology, but really just to say, we want law enforcement, first responders, people who are using substances, college students who are taking pills that they shouldn't be taking, but many of them are taking anyway, how can we make sure these people have the ability to know if they're using a contaminated substance that is potentially going to kill them Mm -hmm. um, and be able to save lives that way? So it Mm -hmm. seems like a a slam dunk for us. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of support for fentanyl testing strips um, among law enforcement also uh, here in Mississippi. We actually learned about the testing wipes from the Oxford police chief who had heard about it because it's an emerging technology and it's not available yet. He had heard about it and he said, you know, these are these would be even better because you don't have to crush the substance. We we don't want people crushing yeah, pills. <laughs> sure. Um, and yet, there are a lot of people who are already using powdered substances. They need to have access okay. to those testing strips, but but we really want them to to have access beyond that to be able to make healthier choices and choices where they're going to stay alive and we're going to have fewer funerals. What else are you going to be uh, talking to legislators about in the coming session? That's going to be our our big focus right now. We really feel like making that shift towards how can we save lives? How can we um, shift away from just trying to punish our way out of this crisis? I was talking to a doctor last week, and he made a great point as we were talking about the difference between sort of continuing to try to crack down our way out of the fentanyl crisis and um, tougher sentences. And there's, you know, people have been talking about, well, if we let's just do life in prison or let's just do the death penalty for distributing fentanyl. Hmm. And he said, the thing is that that's 
the risk of death is already baked into any kind of activity in the underground market. Yeah. There is, there's no amount of cracking down or longer sentences that is beyond the risk people are already taking to sell drugs when you've got cartels and gangs and all of that. As part of that, we can't crack down our way out of that. that that's, they're already taking massive amounts of risk. It's true. But we can try to say, okay, what's driving them to do that? It's the financial incentives behind drugs being available on the underground market. And how can we bring those um, back into a way that, that's not going to kill well, people? I can't see why this is not something that we can't get done, so I'll uh, certainly be tracking that. Uh, I'm assuming that um, folks in the legislature you've talked to, Nick Bain, etc., they're on board with this? We yeah, there's go, a lot but, of support for it. Okay, good. Yep. We'll be tracking it. Appreciate you coming on, Christina. You and yours have a very Happy, healthy, safe, Merry Christmas, Happy Holiday. You too. Safe, prosperous New Year. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. Dino Mike! On Super Talk Mississippi. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Dashing through the snow, in a one-horse open sleigh. O'er the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on bobtail ring, making our spirits bright. What fun it is. We are back in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi. So we were talking about uh, the border situation, which is it's kind of in limbo. Because we have sort of this temporary order. It's considered temporary, issued by Justice Roberts, which keeps 42, Title 42, in place. But I don't know if it's, well, that will be permanent. But literally, they're staging. They're coming. They know. The cartels know. The cartels own the border of the United States with Mexico. They own it. Not the United States. On purpose. Deliberate. By this administration. And this was a pandemic-era policy introduced uh, in the Trump administration in March of 2020. And it's essentially allowed border patrol agents to turn away migrants at the border on the grounds they might be bringing COVID with them. And so the Trump administration said at that time the order was designed to prevent the spread. Now, you would think that an administration, the Biden administration, the Democrats, that I don't think I've ever met an order related to COVID, a restriction they didn't like, they didn't embrace. They're euphoric every time they issue them. It's the euphoria of power over people in their lives that drives them. But in this case, oh, it's okay. So we can shut down American schools in places of worship and restaurants and businesses and the like, but not the border. Derek and Greenwood on the ceasefire text line has a great point about it. Until Biden revokes the state of emergency, the policy should stay in place. Totally agree. 
which they have If it's extended. good for the goose, it's good for the gander. Uh, that's a good point, Derek. I agree with you. And so that, I think, is uh, something that reminds me what Derek's saying there, the state of emergency, which, as you know, was just extended out through April, I believe, is when it is presently uh, scheduled to end. And I don't think they want to ever end it. I really don't. I think there's power derived from the state of emergency. And uh, there's all sorts of other stuff that they'd, they've hung their hat on, policy, payments, programs, they've hung their hat on and said, well, like the student loan. Look no further than that, right? Which that's been pushed back to what, June 31st? The moratorium on repayment, right, right. through June. But the whole forgiveness debacle was, was uh, done under the guise of we're under an emergency, therefore the president, not not the rationale for the forgiveness, but the uh, allowance, the authority of the president to, with a stroke of a pen, forgive $500 billion of student loans. And that's being conservative in the estimate. That was all rooted in, well, it's an emergency, emergency power. And one of the things that should concern us, by the way, is when you look at this $1.7 trillion spending bill, which includes uh, more funding for COVID relief and combating and just management, which includes $10, $12 billion more for the center, the CDC, Center for Disease Control, as requested by the director, Rochelle Walensky. So the problem with that, folks, is that when you insert that into the budget, okay, and you, you establish that budget now as a baseline for subsequent years, this is the problem with baseline budgeting. Well, last year it was X. This year it's X plus times Y to accommodate inflation and increased costs and needs, etc. So now we've got COVID spending permanently built in our budgeting process. Permanent. As long as we continue down this road and approach of using baseline budgeting. That's why they do it that way, honestly. Because it protects it in the future. One of the things that's about to happen that's just not getting talked about is Medicaid. Because, remember, one of the provisions, going back to the CARES Act, passed under Donald Trump 2020, was that states would get more money for Medicaid. That's still the case. We're still getting an uplift. I think it's 6.5% over the base federal match. But you can't kick anybody off that's ineligible. And that's why the rolls have swollen 90 million people in this country on Medicaid. Our roles have swollen by over 100,000 here in the state of Mississippi. Cannot de-enroll them under this emergency order. And that was, uh, actually it was passed before the CARES Act. It was enacted as part of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act passed in March of 2020 with 
virtual unanimous support. And that prohibited state Medicaid agencies from disenrolling ineligible beneficiaries while the health emergency is in place, is active. So think about that. It will have been three years when it finally ends, assuming it does, at the end of April 2023. Three years. States have not been able to de-enroll anyone off of Medicaid if they no longer are eligible for those benefits. And that has caused enrollment to rise to unprecedented levels. I just shared with you the number. 90 million. Nearly a third of the country is on Medicaid. And that's without expanding in 11 states, including the state of Mississippi. So it is estimated that some 19 million would be booted off of Medicaid once the emergency order expires. Estimated. That is incredible. And then you got the 6.2% temporary, in quotes, increase, three years temporary increase in Medicaid uh, payments from the federal government, their share, that goes away. That will have an effect on the state of Mississippi without expanding Medicaid, just funding base Medicaid. So all this is coming up in a short four months. Now, the Urban Institute predicts 16 million. I think it's more than that. I'm saying 19, just based on some other reports I've read. But this is coming. It's kind of looming out there, and nobody's talking a lot about it. And folks are going to get kicked off. So think about the health care problem or the health, uh, not, not just health care, but the, uh, the problem with our hospitals, the financial problem with our hospitals in the state of Mississippi, which we've talked about extensively and interviewed Mayor Carolyn McAdams of Greenwood concerning the Greenwood LaFleur Hospital, which seems to be in really tough financial shape. We can, of course, dissect that a thousand ways on why it's that way, but it it is in difficult financial situation right now. It's so are numerous other hospitals in the state. Well, when this order expires in this enhanced federal sharing of the load in Medicaid of some 6.2% ends, that's going to have an impact on the finances, not only of the state of Mississippi, but the hospitals in this, in the providers in this state who, who uh, receive a fair amount of their revenue from Medicaid. Of course, maybe that's offset because people will lose Eligibility, they'll be disenrolled. Well, they haven't been able to do that for three years. It, it, so if they're not eligible anymore, they'll be disenrolled. But you know what I'm thinking, Rhino? They're going to pull out all the stops to figure out a way to stay eligible. That's just what happens. They'll come up with something. And again, in Mississippi, able-bodied adults don't qualify because we didn't expand Medicaid. It's children. It's pregnant mothers. It's it's the disabled, it's the blind, and indigent elderly. Those are the primary coverage groups. So this is 
just trying to call attention to things that are on the horizon for us here that we just need to be concerned about. We're stepping aside for a break right here. At 12.05, don't forget Starla Brown, Mississippi State Director for Americans for Prosperity. Stay with us. Coming right back. On this Christmas Day. Bring it on! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on! On Super Talk Mississippi. the Baston Pops, parked the car in the Harvard Yard. <laughs> Carol in Starkville sent us some rather festive photos. Looks like you guys are having a little party at the office there, huh, Carol? It's beautiful. Looks like y'all have fun. I bet you got some good eats there. Those cupcakes look good. Man, they do. <laughs> Says Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Work party today. Y'all have fun. Y'all have fun. Chris, the mailman, says, what is the Narcan certification process? I'm not sure. You know, Rhino? I'm not familiar with that. Ben from Madison, pretty sure I've heard Representative Yancey say he supports legalizing the test strips that Christina Dent upended for good discussed on the program. I want to say the civilian Narcan, I think they call it layperson naloxone something, because that's the the generic name for Narcan, naloxone. Okay. It's a online course, I want to say, where you can get certified to where you you understand the usage of it and the dosage of it and all that, but I'm not exactly sure how you get signed up for it. Hmm. CC in Sanatobia says, in quotes, Hey, buddy, we better test this cocaine first before we snort the whole pile. Got to be safe and responsible about this stuff. Well, I think... With respect to fentanyl testing, CC, the the goal, of course, would be to test, and upon learning that the cocaine is laced with fentanyl, one would hope that uh, those testers there would refrain from snorting it because they're going to die if they do. They're not going to get a high off of cocaine. They're going to die in short order. That, that's the goal there. I, I get what you're saying, but I think it misses the mark, honestly. I, I don't see what the harm is of testing a chemical, essentially what you're doing. I don't like drug abuse, not condoning that. I don't think this supports, promotes, or facilitates it. I really don't. I, I don't really equate it with handing out needles and and government-funded injection sites and the like. I don't see it quite the same. We'll see where it goes in the session. Overwhelm the, sis- the system. Cloward Piven, the plan. Talking about the influx of immigrants expected to cross the border if Title 42. It's crazy, is it not, Rhino, that we're relying on pandemic policy? To secure the border? Just to keep some degree of order to stem the tide? 
Because they're saying fourteen to 15,000 per day. Per day. That's insanity. Yeah, so we, and that's just because we have a president from day one who said, come on in, borders open, that's not who we are. Well, who are we? A country without a border? A country without sovereignty? That seems like who we are. And now you've got Mayor Eric Adams of New York saying, we need more money to deal with all this. But you supported it. Now it's a problem for you. Likely consuming, honestly, if you think about it, most of his time. Someone else who's making a bit of a pivot, rather surprisingly, is the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. She's come out and said, you know, about these tax increases, you folks in the New York Assembly are discussing, I think we better hold tight on that. Oh, really? So you're seeing these onerous tax uh, increases having an effect on your population. Yeah, they're bolting out of your state and your city. Even Mayor Eric Adams of New York City says, you know, we tax those people enough. Really? What tipped you off there, Mayor? So now they've come out and said that uh, they oppose instituting tax increases in the Empire State that have been on the table. You don't say. It's just amazing to me that they're just waking up. So now you tell us that this is bad. It's just unbelievable. It's now dawning on some of these New York Democrats. Here's what New York City Mayor Eric Adams last week said about a tax increase. Quote, to continually attack high-income earners when 51% of our taxes are paid by 2% of New Yorkers. Think about that. 51% paid by 2% of the city's population. It blows my mind when I hear people say, so what if they leave? No, you leave. I want my high-income earners right here in this city. It's good to hear, but you're a little late there. You know what else you're going to lose? You're going to lose your Biden club card, right? Because Biden still tells us they don't pay their fair share. That's not what this guy's saying. He's saying, in fact, 51% of the taxes are paid by percent of the New Yorkers. You're just waking up and realizing that? We've been telling you that. They wish they only paid their fair share. So now they're waking up. Even the New York Comptroller, who's a moderate, said the exodus of taxpayers at the upper end, quote, should be a concern for everybody. He added that, quote, we might be getting near that tipping point where we do make it economically unsustainable for enough of those folks to stay here. You can't make it up. They're just unbelievable. So they've had an outflow of some of their most successful 
citizens who shoulder the burden of these taxes. He also said he's going to get rid of the tent cities of all the homeless. But you know where he gets the money from that? The rich people that are paying that. It's just not like they're waking up realizing that they're killing the goose that lays the golden egg. It ain't that hard to figure out here. Now you wake up and tell. It's just unbelievable. So we'll see where that goes. I'm always confused by the fentanyl issue, says Jeff in Grenada. Why would drug dealers implement a drug that kills the customers? What is the purpose of fentanyl? It's just short-term financial gain. They figure there's enough people out there. They're not going to kill them all. There's, there's enough money to be made while they can, sort of deal. I mean, they're, not, they're not, I don't think they're worried about killing their customers, honestly. I don't think that ever crosses their mind. It's just, let me get some money today. Yeah, have that stuff. You're dead next. How many Islamic terrorists are coming across the border, says Darren and Jackson? Lord only knows. I did see a report where several of those who crossed were, were questioned and asked where they hail from. It's all over South America. It's virtually every country in South America, Central America, Mexico, of course. Yeah, I'm sure, Darren, that there are terrorists included in the lot. How would you know with that number that aren't being processed? They just come in without being checked. And they're off and running somewhere into this country. CC in Senatobi says, We watched my cousin die a long, horrible 10-year death from safe drug usage. Forgive my missing the mark. So I would just ask CC, what's your suggestion? How would you like to see it handled? You're, obviously, you're opposed to the testing strips. I don't think you're going to make this stuff go away. And I, I, honestly, my position on, on drugs has always been as long as people want to put that stuff in their body, somebody's going to sell it to them. Somebody's going to produce it. Somebody's going to sell it to them. I think the difference is here, people that ingest fentanyl, many, not all, many, do it unwittingly. They don't know. That's the difference. It's not like, yeah, I'm going to go take me some fentanyl and kill myself. I don't think that's what's happening. They're taking Oxycontin or something else that happens to be laced with it. And I do think that's the typical case. It's a tough one. I, I know the government's been fighting it for as long as I can remember. The so-called war on drugs, it's about as successful as the war on poverty. It ain't working. And we've spent trillions on it. Hmm. On the ceasefire text line, talking about the Narcan? It's being offered through county health departments. To have nasal Narcan shipped to your home, must fill out a questionnaire and watch a video. If you ha it asks if you have insurance, so if, if so, it will bill your insurance. Interesting. Since now, insurers are mandated to pay for Narcan without a prescription. Take your word for it. I don't really know. Brenda Lee. I heard she was 13 when she recorded that. 13. Heard that huh. when the song was introduced the other day. Coming right back. Stay with us. You know what that means. Middays. 
Mornings with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live! On Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, Middays, Super Talk, Mississippi. So now, this is on the ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395, if you'd like to join the conversation. So now druggies can test their stuff, flush it down the commode, and enough of this, then it gets in the groundwater, killing lots of people instead of just one junkie. I do have to think about that. I don't know. I don't think it works like that. It would take a whole lot of fentanyl to contaminate an entire area's drinking supply. I mean, I haven't heard of anybody I mean, there have been studies done water. where people flush that's why they say don't flush your prescriptions take it to the pharmacy, they can destroy it for you Yeah, because they've done studies where in certain populations or certain areas there is measurable amounts in the, the water supply, but it's not enough to even feel the effects of it it's just measurable in a lab Okay Makes sense. Chris, the mailman, says, if I find a substance of unknown origin in one of my teenager's rooms, I would love to know what the hell it is. Nobody is talking about that angle. For the legalizing of test strips, because the test strips are currently illegal, and if you could get your hands on them legally as a parent, a concerned parent, who perhaps finds a baggie of white powder in the sock drawer, you could test it. Yeah. Makes sense to me. We need to stop spending tax dollars to protect people from their own bad decisions. They know better and know the risks associated with drug use. I don't think this involves the spending of tax dollars. We're talking about amending statute, but I haven't heard anyone promote the idea of taxpayers funding it. Did I miss something there? What do you know? I don't think that's the way it was proposed. I think it's just changing the status of the test strips from paraphernalia, making them illegal, right, to a test strip. Just like you can go to the store and get a test strip for your pool chemicals. Right. I mean, I wouldn't support that either. I wouldn't support taxpayer funding of that. But, you know, that, that kind of triggers, I guess, even a, a, a larger, more philosophical question I've often thought about, if you think about Medicaid. Right? 90 million people on Medicaid. These are people who are getting government-funded health care. Government replaced that with taxpayer-funded. For free. For free. Right. Zero. No cost. Well, what about their irresponsible lifestyle? Well, you heard Miss Israel a couple of weeks ago, right? I think she hit that nail on the head, talking about pregnant mothers which are a category, a covered category, without expansion, a big category. And all of the problematic pregnancies and deliveries that could be avoided, completely eliminated, with just observing some good health practices. And that's what her organization, and I'm not, I'm not here stumping for it, but the rationale makes sense with me, reverberates with me. If you take care of yourself before and during pregnancy, she pointed out that obesity, number one 
contributor, number one underlying cause that contributes to problematic pregnancies and deliveries and, and even postpartum issues for mother and baby. Yeah, that makes sense, but yet we're paying for it. Fully. All the care. So, do the taxpayers have a right to say, well, look, and that's what she advocated for, as I recall. Hey, if we're going to pay for it, well, then you got to do your part by just observing these common sense, practical health practices. It's pretty simple. And that sounds like a fair deal to me. We'll take care of you. But, you know, you got to quit drinking and smoking while you're pregnant. And you you got to cut your weight down, etc. You got to watch your your blood pressure, your blood sugar, etc. All these other underlying conditions that contribute to having a a tough time while you're pregnant and certainly during delivery and even post and yeah, I mean that makes sense to me. So there's all kinds of I mean think about you pay for insurance for your assets, your car, and you're a responsible driver. Accidents happen, no doubt. Stuff just happens. You can't control. But what about the accidents you could control? You were just irresponsible. We're all paying for that. That's just the way it works. But you're not going to go without it. You're not going to take that risk. Nobody is. Very few will. At a minimum, but it's it. Uh, I'm cer- simply saying that it kind of opens up a Pandora's box of a whole series of questions when you think about that. I don't like paying for someone's drug abuse either, and I don't really want to. But the test strips, to my knowledge, there wasn't a proposal on the table for the government to pay for those to make those free. No, it's just simply changing the statute to make them no longer paraphernalia, which is Ill- it's illegal to own paraphernalia. Right. It's an important distinction we just wanted to point out here. So taking a break right here, hour three of the program after the news coming your way, and then Starla Brown, Mississippi State Director for Americans for Prosperity. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply. To think deeply and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone hour three of midday super talk mississippi we are live in the element well studios today going to be down at carter jewelers tomorrow and then also on friday back in the studios on thursday but joining us now starla brown mississippi state director for americans for prosperity starla good to have you on middays thanks for coming in hey gerard it's great to be here today on this uh kind of cold and dreary uh day but uh uh, we're doing okay out there. Didn't ice over, so I think that's a that's a plus for Mississippi today. You don't get this in Florida. No, that's where you came from, yeah, right? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I've been through a few ice storms in my early days back here in Mississippi. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So. 
I'm uh, I'm adjusting though. Uh, I got you. I'm adjusting. So. All right, so so tell our our audience about uh, the organization AFP Americans for Prosperity. Sure. So Americans for Prosperity um, is is part of the Stand Together community, and we are you know one of many nonprofits throughout the organization sometimes all rowing in the same direction but different uh, approaches or pieces of how we do that we sort of uh, kind of mark ourselves on four pillars of society, which we believe are key institutions, right? And institutions don't necessarily mean brick and mortar. They mean yeah. the things that make them up. And so government is one, and that's primarily where uh, Americans for Prosperity uh, focuses. Uh, but we also uh, have community, education, and business. And sometimes there's some overlap between how we work in those other pieces, but primarily we focus on that policy and government piece and trying to get uh, policy across the line that we believe is going to uh, break the barriers to opportunity for for the people in the states where we're working and also uh, create opportunity uh, for everyone so it's you know it's not about carving out something for special interest or uh, sort of that uh, notion of, of cronyism and um, you know that type of thing it's it's making sure that everybody everybody is included sure What's uh, what's on your radar for the upcoming 2023 legislative session? They'll be down at the Capitol gathering up there in That's two right. weeks from today. That's right. Yeah, we'll be down there. We'll we'll be there every day. We got an office uh, near the Capitol, so we'll be working primarily out of out of that office and okay. across the street. But um, a couple of different things that we're looking at. Healthcare is one of them. So you know, if you look um, not only at the state level but the federal level, there's a lot of policies that can mirror up to each other. And uh, as we as we move down the next couple of years, and even this year, um, you know, 20% of the GDP by some studies is spent on healthcare in the US and so that's a huge number when you're looking at that uh, one of one of the things that we've uh, been kind of heralding uh, at the federal and state level is what we call the personal option and we actually have a website personaloption.com you can go there and and take a look at this but uh, on our legislative agenda so there's a series of different things um, you know the problem with healthcare is we're always looking for the silver bullet and a lot of times that silver bullet looks like Medicaid expansion mm -hmm. you know it looks like a top-down approach to and government-run health care as the only opportunity but there are many many pieces out there when put together that are patient-centered with doctors and patients being able to make those choices then we kind of come together with something that we call the personal option uh, one area in particular that we're working on is the certificate of need mm -hmm. so uh, look I'd love to see all of the uh, pieces of certificate of need the state uh, removed uh, but right now we're focusing on mental health and substance abuse facilities and for those people who are not familiar which I find uh, around the state that that when we're talking about this is you know this is a permission slip from the government to do business and, or to open up a facility. Right. Talking and, about a certificate of need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we'd like to see that. We'd like to see those removed. But uh, the one piece that we will be working very heavily on this this year, mental health. Uh, if you if you were or have watched uh, the judiciary be the subcommittee on mental health and the different people presented, one of the things that we're finding is whether it's hospital CEOs or it's law enforcement. They're absolutely inundated with people uh, in the hospitals and jails that are coming in for either substance abuse or mental health, and it's a weight on those facilities. Um, so we're we're hoping uh, it's a very simple bill. Just remove that that hmm. 
to those two pieces there uh, from certificate of need. Um, I don't know if the floodgates will open, but the opportunity for people to come into the state and create more beds and more facilities uh, to help with this crisis. And I use the word crisis because if you listen to the data and statistics that were presented, we do have a mental health crisis here in Mississippi mm-hmm. uh, and one of substance abuse. And, you know, when you uh, compare that to criminal justice, which is another piece we're going to be working on, um, and we're going to be focusing on violent crime. So that may may seem a little outside of what we've focused on in the past, but we've got four principles. One is the properly funding the police. I use the word properly, right? So there's a lot of things police need, whether it's training, uh, better, uh, better, you know, use of uh, things that they can do that in the community programs, mm-hmm. um, focusing um, on their time and resources in preventing violent crime. Often, when you see something like some law enforcement officer saying, seventy percent of the people in our incarcerated in our jail or our prisons, you know, facilities have this type of mental health issue, they're encumbered with that, and they don't have the ability to spend the time on and actually reducing violent crime, which is something we sorely need. Yeah. Um, you know, we see that. Uh, I think in 2019, there were just over 10 million arrests. It's about 13% of those arrests were actually around uh, very nonviolent drug possession charges. Mm. So they're dealing with a lot of things that are taking their time. We also uh, want to focus on... Um, what we call an evidence-based approach uh, to reduce violent crime. We need to know the statistics. We need to know what's happening in our communities and, and, and where and why. And then we want to continue to enact um, smart on crime policies. Uh, these are alternatives to incarceration that make sense. Uh, and one of the things that we've got to remember is that there's a judicial piece to this. So we don't want to be like New York where we put out a very broad you know, sort of, I think a lot of people would refer to it as a get-out-of-jail-free card, <laughs> but um, we don't want to have that broad policy because that that's a one-size-fits-all approach to to uh, reducing violent crime, and it, it just didn't work in New York. It, it, it's had some terrible results, and we don't want to see that here in Mississippi. What we want to see is uh, the judicial process work as it should, where mm-hmm. judges can be judges. Uh, and so that's another, another piece that we're looking at. Um, I think when we talk, refer back to health care, one of the things that uh, we've seen is what we call full practice authority. Right. So your nurse practitioners, your physician's assistants, you'll see all of this on our legislative agenda at thepersonaloption.com, but allowing those individuals to practice fully what they've been trained to do will help um, immensely make uh, health care more accessible mm-hmm. and affordable. Try to get... Uh, some progress on that this past session. Correct. I think got a little bit, yeah. but not not totally there yet. Right. There's still a collaborative piece for nurse practitioners that we'd like to see removed. Explain uh, that for our audience. So, so for, for the audience, um, nurse practitioners within a certain mile radius can't practice sort of autonomously, but they have some reporting and things that they have to do back to a physical doctor. Mm-hmm. But that includes some some very large fees. Um, some of the reporting, I would say, based on the discussions that, that we've heard with different nurses or facilities, is that it's it's very minimal, the work that's being done, but they're incurring sometimes as much as a $5,000 fee. Yep. Um, and in these rural areas where we need more health care, uh, nurse practitioners setting up and being able to just, just simply do what they do, obviously – if it's outside their scope of you know of practice or what what they're trained to do, 
obviously they need to send those people elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, but as we look at all the hospital closings, as we look at all of the inability to pay, um, you know, nurse practitioners, one thing they can actually offer that we think is great, and, and doctors and hospitals could do the same, is price transparency, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people don't get treatment sometimes that could prevent longer uh, term disease because they're afraid of the cost, right? Yeah. They don't know up front what they're going to pay. And sometimes even with insurance, that's the case, right? So um, th- these are the kind of things we think that when you add it all together, telehealth, when you add in all of these different pieces, um, if we if we get all of these things together, then we've got our silver bullet, right? Mm-hmm. We've got we've got a more f- uh, pa- uh, focused, uh, patient-centered type focus with healthcare, and that's what we're really looking to do, uh, not just at the state level but at the federal level as well, and not not take the mindset that this top-down approach of let's hey let's just throw some more tax dollars at a broken program like Medicaid. That's that's something that you know. Yeah, so Dr. Edney, of course, with the Department of Health, reports that uh, there are some 54 rural hospitals of the total 122 in the mm-hmm. state, says that more than half of them are in, in crisis-level financial condition. Mm-hmm. So not sure what the government, yeah, if at all, intends to insert themselves in, into that situation and, yeah. and address it. But we're up against a break right here. I know you got more that you're working with the legislature on. We'll come back and talk about that if you're available. Absolutely. All right. We got Starla Brown, Mississippi State Director for AFP in the Element Well Studios, coming right back. Super Talk Mississippi. Even you too, huh? Wow, I'm impressed, Rhino. Finding. <laughs> You got like an encyclopedia back there of uh, Christmas songs when you're finding U2. No, I just go down the rabbit hole of Christmas music, <laughs> I and eventually you. I find up find a whole bunch of stuff that I'm like, wow, y'all did Christmas? <laughs> We're talking to Starla Brown, Mississippi State Director for Americans for Prosperity. All right, so yeah, healthcare, no doubt, has got to got to top the list. The certificate of need laws are uh, archaic, been around for quite some time. And there are powerful lobbies that want to keep them in place, as you as you well know. But it sure. it uh, it's contradictory to a free market as much as anything I can think of. And you're you're absolutely right. The health care, what's called the healthcare economy, as you know, the HCE, right, is what uh, economists and those in the industry refer to it as. The acronym, the HCE, it's about twenty percent of the the nation's total GDP sits at about six trillion dollars. Um, just under $6 trillion, which is incredible when you think about it. It's a big part of our economy here, 122 
healthcare institutions, many of which are really struggling to make ends meet. And even Dr. Edney has said, you know, Medicaid expansion might help a little bit, but it's it's not, the, as you called it, the silver bullet. But the fact is, we still uh, have a lot of folks in here that are un- in the Mississippi who are uninsured and um, who are receiving care that is uncompensated, not paid for. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the solution is to that. I can share this anecdotally. I'm uh, approaching the age where I'll be eligible for Medicare. So, of course, I started looking into that, researching that. I could not believe how expensive Medicare is because base Medicare, Part B Medicare, really doesn't provide coverage, certainly not equivalent to what you're used to in a typical group plan that your employer provides. So when you supplement that, with all the other coverage, for my wife and I, it's fifteen hundred bucks a month. It's eighteen thousand dollars a year under Medicare. Right. I, I just blew me away. So I'm I start thinking about now that's it's income tested, as you know. Right. So I, you know I'm yeah, blessed to have the income right. to such that I'm going to pay the maximum amount. But it's still ridiculous. It's expensive, and a lot of people just flat out can't afford can't afford it. Period. I don't know what the solution is for that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the things that we've looked at, and maybe it's not so much you know when you're approaching that age, but we've you know some people call it uh, concierge services yeah. was a more common term, but direct primary care. And there's a lot of doctors out there who are modeling some really wonderful practices. They're able to make money. They're able to compete. And they're able to to provide because because they're out there operating as a business. They're creating contracts with, um, you know, I, I use an analogy that I used not too long ago. Um, so I had a friend who was in, decided to go direct primary care, little catastrophic insurance and that was that was that was healthcare based on age group and health and that kind of thing and um you know had the options to choose what makes that up um looked at a health savings account as well right uh, but you know that still needs some work at the federal level to get to get people you know where everybody can access it so so one of the things that found was if i went to get an mri with you know my insurance policy and uh, all intents and purposes looks like sort of a typical Cadillac insurance policy. But mm-hmm. if I went to get that, the MRI was a couple thousand dollars that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. In their case, because of the contract the direct primary care doctor had with the laboratory to send all their business there and to work through that, uh, they paid $87 yeah. for an MRI. Yeah. So there's something wrong, and and a lot of people will say, well, you can attribute that back to the health insurance market and and you know the middleman and all these different things. But there is something wrong with the way we we do business. Um, uh, you know, I talked a little bit before the break about price transparency, yeah. right, and how that would help some people actually determine what they could afford and what they could do. Um, and one of the things that that I was Somebody asked me, well, what do you mean by price transparency? And I said, well, look, I said, you know, it's Christmas time. You're getting a lot of mailers, right, in the mail. Everybody's got similar products at similar department stores, and each one's running their stuff for a different price. If if doctors and hospitals had those same sort of uh, scenarios and you could say, well, gee, I'll go over here and do my business because it's going to cost this much at this doctor or this, this hospital to get this procedure done um, – You'd be shopping the same way. 
competition isn't a bad thing if at the end of the day you believe healthcare is about the patient, their relationship with their doctor, and the ability for them to access affordable quality care. Mm-hmm. If you're lobbying otherwise because the patient is the number one piece in this and healthcare for individuals is not number one, well, then you're probably lobbying for something else and it's not a free market principle. Yeah, it's it's got to be the only commodity that uh, consumers uh, are ever faced with purchasing that there are multiple prices for the same service. Same, same service, yeah. exactly. I mean, so. I, I describe it, it'd be like walking in the McDonald's in the and you look at the menu and the price of a Big Mac, and there are four prices depending on who you are and who's paying. Essentially, it's the way it works, and <laughs> exactly. you scratch your head. And that, yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's broken. There's no doubt about it. And uh, but policies that involve more government, uh, no doubt, sort of amp up mm-hmm. um, the <laughs> the the defects in the system. Sure, is what happens. They're- they're they're just they're gonna they're gonna exacerbate an already yeah. uh, failing system yeah. and and look there's there's a point in time where these failures are coming I mean there this is this is going to happen it's not a matter of of uh, you know offsetting something immediately but but I think in in the interim I asked the question what's the worst that could happen if you removed a certificate of need what's mm-hmm. the worst that could happen. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes in with a great model and does a great business, or they come in with a model and they fail. We're already failing right. a lot of models right yeah. now. So, so I think the the idea here isn't about you know. And and, and bottom line, government shouldn't be giving that permission a permission to right. care, as we call it sometimes, right? Um, and so you know, when it comes to the mental health facilities, so needed, and we know we have this crisis, right? Why not just move that piece out of the way? What if there are those organizations you know, that want to come in and provide services and feel like they can do that in, in, in some way? Um, you know, what, what's the worst that's going to happen? We have some more beds? Totally agree. So, <laughs> totally agree. So it's kind of, a, a to me, an illogical argument to, to have. But It's uh, not a whole unlike the whole licensing system sure. in the state where you got to go to your competitors to get permission to compete with them essentially exactly. so exactly. that makes no sense whatsoever yeah so. what else is on your radar yeah, coming so, up so education uh, you know what we call foundational education that K through 12 sector is also on our radar um, looking towards uh, something called dual enrollment uh, mm-hmm. and we'll be rolling out some stuff here in January um, probably catch some here on super talk and a few other few other media places but um, we're uh, we're talking with actual students in other states who have dual enrollment. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding are these phenomenal stories about how much dual enrollment helped them, whether it was with the, the cost, how much it saved them for the cost of college, how much it allowed them to get a jump start in their career. When you look at the fact that not every student is going to go to a four-year university, uh, there's a lot of programs out there, and Mississippi has a wonderful community college system. We always have. I attended attended it myself years ago, and mm-hmm. I I believe that uh, we you know we look at these shortages of like healthcare workers, right? Uh, why not let students start that are going to pursue some of these different um, areas that that's not a four year university get it, get that jump start on their career or or even on um, you know their college classes to to further them along. And so um, we're excited about um, uh, that, and we'll be talking more about it and hopefully educating the public on on what exactly it it can look like and okay. and, and what it looks like in other states that uh, and hearing from kids who 
we've actually been through the program. So we're excited to share those stories. Um, you know, we continue to sort of beat the drum for uh, the elimination of the personal income tax. Uh, it's, um, you, you know, obviously we're looking for legislation that doesn't have tax swa- swaps in it, that doesn't, um, you know, kind of beg from Peter to pay Paul, as we say, right, and, mm-hmm. and, and goes over here to increase the tax here or there to offset something. If it makes sense and Mississippi is uh, going to continue to attract businesses and thrive, you know, businesses need a couple of things for sure. They need a, an educated workforce, uh, but the lower, t- the lower taxes uh, is also uh, very attractive for businesses to come in our state. And one of the things that Mississippi needs, I mean, obviously there are certain sectors of jobs that are available right now, but we need higher paying jobs. We need jobs that have uh, longevity for people, uh, that help the help bring people out of poverty and up to middle class, right, or, or, or greater. No doubt. And so uh, we're hoping to, to work through that. But when it comes to education, we want to see more options for families and students. And it's not just about the funding stream. We've got some things to work on there, but boldly, we want—we don't want zip codes to determine where someone goes to school. So it's getting rid of the lines, and also the supply side. You know, the increase of micro schools, charter schools, learning pods. Yep, all popular. All popular. Big time in Florida, as you well know. Yeah. Arizona as well. We can yeah. do, and West even Virginia. neighboring. Yep, even yeah. neighboring Louisiana has exactly. had a lot of success with that. Startup, appreciate you coming on. Uh, sure. Really enjoyed the conversation. We'll probably see you and the folks down at the Capitol here in, in a couple of weeks during the session. You and yours have a, a blessed, happy, healthy, Merry Christmas, and a good New Year. Thanks. Merry Christmas. Yep. Coming right back on Midday. Stay with us. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right. We are back. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios, midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Thank you for joining us today. You been to the Taco Bell lately, by chance? Not lately, but uh, I'm not opposed to it. I was told, sort of third hand, haven't verified this, that the cost of a regular taco has increased dramatically, like in the last couple of weeks. Didn't they used to be under a dollar, maybe? Oh, yeah. I mean, you go back far enough, they were 45 cents, I want to say, during the the Chihuahua, the Taco Bell dog. Yeah. It was under half a dollar at that Hmm. point. Hmm. But, yeah, I'm looking at the website, and... uh, What do you see? A soft taco is a buck 69. Right. Soft or crunchy. Yeah. And then for the Supreme, it's 250. Jeez. So I think it has risen. Somewhat. That does seem a little higher than I remember. Yeah. Hmm. I'm I'm watching uh, the CEO of TGI. This is what made me think about it. Ray Blanchett, the CEO of TGI Fridays. He's on the Business Channel right now talking about inflation challenges that uh, the restaurant chain is dealing with. That seems to be where... Inflation has been the most stubborn, would you say? Food just feels like it, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I actually, I saw a sign while I was in Tupelo over the weekend going into a pizza place to eat lunch after church with the family. And above the door, 
There's a sign that says, the new pandemic is short-staffed. Please be patient with our workers. How about that? Big old problem still, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's because the government's paying everybody to sit their butt at home, smoke dope, and play video games. There have been reports in the last 48 hours or so discussing just how much one can make by just living off the government, not working. You know... America, despite what the left wants to tell you, it's evil and wicked, is by far the most generous nation on the planet. And that includes to its own people, many of whom aren't even citizens. We just go out of our way to take care of people. And you look at the streets and you see all the homeless in the tent cities and so forth springing up, and you say, well, no, we're, there are people slipping through the cracks. Have you seen reports that a lot of these people want to be there and literally enjoy, or choose, I should say, to be homeless and live on the streets, even though they could get out of those circumstances? What the hell's going on? In the meantime, employers still struggling to fill their ranks? No doubt about that is a problem. And there's just people that are living off the government. It's too easy. Free food, free housing, free health care. So the newly elected mayor of Los Angeles, she says there are like 40,000 homeless on the streets in Los Angeles. And her goal is to get them all off the street and like into housing of some sort, including use of hotels. They're, they're funding paying hotels and working contracts out with hotels to house the homeless. That's incredible. That's going on in this country. Totally incredible. Mm. Well, let's, let's see here. Uh, Gary in the Berg says, ICE plans to release illegal, this is today, News today. Illegal immigrants in Tennessee to await court proceedings, Governor says. It's Governor Lee, who says the move is a threat to the safety of Tennessee residents. Gary wants to know, are Mississippi officials paying attention to this? Hopefully they are, and enforcing E-Verify. We could get overrun very quickly. Red states need to remain red, or all is lost, enforce the law. Yeah, and that's the, it's the federal government's responsibility to control the border and to manage that situation. And they're essentially advocating it by not funding the law, uh, funding the resources necessary to enforce the law. And the legal system's not standing behind that. But I think more importantly, we have a president and top-ranking Democrats who are broadcasting to the whole dang planet, come on in. Though they say they're not, but they—they they are. And actions speak louder than words. Exactly. And think about this: we played the clip earlier in the program with whomever it was. It was a spokesperson from the somebody that works in the administration who said that. Well, he was—he was in Arizona, but and that, that was like to at some chip plant opening or something like that, ceremony. 
He can disrupt everything for that. But as far as while he's there, just a short trip down to the border south there in Arizona, he couldn't take the time to do that, right? But he had time to sit down with his bride and Drew Barrymore for a cushy conversation. Could you believe that crap? That's those softball questions coming from her? She was fawning all over him, like he was a celebrity. Orders of magnitude greater than her is the kind of the way she approached it. That was sad. Oh, gosh. And then, did you see this report about how he lied about awarding his uncle a Purple Heart after he became the vice president? Why does he lie like this all the time? So, this was last week, on Friday, December 16th. He was at an event at the National Guard Reserve Center in Newcastle, Delaware. <laughs> and he literally told a story. I couldn't find the video of it. Maybe you could, Rhino. But, the, but quickly, he told the story that he awarded his uncle, Frank Biden, the Purple Heart for being uh, wounded in the Battle of the Bulge, World War II, right? You got it? Here we go. You know, I, uh, my dad, when I got elected vice president, he said, Joey, Uncle Frank fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He was not feeling very well now, not because of the Battle of the Bulge, but he said, and he won the Purple Heart, and he never received it. He never, he never got it. Do you think you could help him get it? It will surprise him. So I got him the Purple Heart. He had won it in the Battle of the Bulge. And I remember he came over to the house, and I came out, and he said, present it to him. Okay, we had the family there. Except there, he's lying. There's just one problem with that. Biden was elected to the office of the vice presidency in 2008, and his uncle Frank passed away in 1999. Oh, so there's a 10-year gap in there. How could he lie like this? Plus, some research was done. He didn't earn the Purple Heart. If he would have, he would have been awarded it. It wouldn't have come 70 years later. Would it? It's not how that works. No, not usually. I mean, if... if I mean, there are posthumous rewards and awards given, but usually if you get a Purple Heart, they give you your Purple Heart. Right. And should. It's the right thing to do. But this is just... Ball face lying again. Why does he have to do that? And if you noticed, it, it's always he always lies in the context and in subject matter that's related to whomever he's talking to. In this case, he he's at this National Guard Reserve, uh, some sort of ceremony there, which is fine for the president to attend, but he has to lie about something military related, like when he's talking to the. To the truck drivers, it's, you know, I drove a truck. Or if he's talking to uh, folks in the black community, you know, I I taught at an HBCU or whatever the hell he lies about. It's because he's still using the playbook from when he first got elected 40-plus years ago where you didn't have fact-checking and the Internet and the ability to call BS on his BS. 
That's true. And everything you say is recorded, just like we were able to, to dial up pretty quickly here and share. Yeah, you're right about that. So then you're not qualified to be president. If you don't understand that evolution, those dynamics, that current state of our culture, of our society, of our systems, you can't be the president. I'm just sorry. You're not qualified. But where is the mainstream media? I know it's a dumb rhetorical question. They're absent and going to remain so. They're not going to call attention to this. And of course, I know it's beating the horse to death, which by the way, Stanford says you can't say. That's that's a forbidden, that's a harmful phrase. But why? Because it's related to gone with the wind? <laughs> probably. But if if the shoe were on the other proverbial foot, and this was a Republican president, heaven forbid it were Donald Trump that told this strong, this bald face, this so easy to to verify is a falsehood as a falsehood lie, they'd be all over it. Coming back with a final segment on midday. Stay with us. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Andy and Jackson says, Don't think riding in an F 150 qualifies one as a truck driver. That is what he did. I think at that same event, right? He was talking about driving a truck. And then the other one that I like is when he had the uh, the world champions, the Dodgers a few years ago, when he was, I think it was, when he was vice president. I, I know it was, pretty sure it was at the White House, and they it, it's traditional, of course, for the world champions of the baseball world to be invited to the White House to celebrate and be commended. And he told a story, you remember that, about playing in the congressional baseball game? And he lied about hitting a one-hopper off the wall. <laughs> yeah, it was July of 2021 when he hosted okay. the Los Angeles Dodgers. He claimed to have hit a 368-foot off-the-center <laughs> field wall. <laughs> but he didn't. He, like, struck out three times. There's, like, why would you lie about that? What benefit is there? And you're talking to people who do this for a living, who have freaky athletic talent when they're playing at that level. What are you trying to boast to Major League Baseball players about hitting a 30-mile-per-hour fastball off the wall, which you didn't do? I don't get it. I just I don't understand it. Do you think anybody's ever told him, like, he just did this on the 16th. You think since then... Four days removed from that, somebody said, well, no, Mr. President, we actually looked it up. You did not award Uncle Frankie the Purple Heart. You weren't the vice president then. And by the way, he didn't earn the Purple Heart. We can find no record of that. You think somebody clued him in? No. Oh, man. That would agitate him and get in the way of his ice cream time. Hmm. There you go, encompassing everyone with the word we says Stanley Lafayette. Stephen Brookhaven wants to know, that do, the, do the recipients of this government money have to pay taxes on that free income? So the New York Post 
published an excellent article uh, about how much a person could earn from the government, receive from the government. And that's even after all the supplemental COVID unemployment benefits have mostly expired. Even with that, when you take into consideration subsidies and the Obamacare exchanges, I just talked about my Medicare with the supplements, eighteen grand a year. Well, when you think about subsidies from the exchanges and SNAP, also known as food, uh, food stamps and and uh, if you're unemployed, you get state unemployment benefits, and you layer on top of that housing assistance, the TANF program, everybody in Mississippi knows what that is. That's the subject of lots of uh, waste, fraud, and abuse, folks being implicated in that. Anyhow, when you add all that up, it is reported that in the state of Washington, one could Receive the equivalent of a hundred and twenty-two thousand bucks. Actually, this would be a family. This would be a family with two children. In Massachusetts, a hundred and seventeen thousand bucks. Well, no wonder they're not getting off the couch. That is nuts. So, folks should be glad to know that the bottom of that list is Mississippi. The best you can do in Mississippi is thirty-seven grand. That's still crazy when you consider the fact that our median household income, also the lowest in the country, is $43,000. So on average, if you work in Mississippi, forty-three grand household. You don't, thirty-seven. That's upside down. That is absolutely upside down. We and are, you can make up the difference without being ineligible. That's true. It's absolutely true. That's just not right. So, yeah, there uh, some of those benefits are taxable. Unemployment benefits are taxable. A SNAP is not. Obamacare subsidies are not. Rent is. So it, it it's a, it depends. You know, it just they're they're all treated differently. But it is crazy. Dysfunctional people lie even when it, it is easier to tell the truth, says Ray on the coast. Honestly, I, I think you're right about that. I think Joe Biden is a guy that has lied so much throughout his life, he really doesn't know. I don't think he knows the difference between fact and fiction. I don't believe he does. What's the old saying, what a tangled web we leave, we leave when we first learn how to deceive? Yeah, good point. You tell lies to cover up the lies, to tell more lies and expand the lie. I mean, you just don't know how to stop the snowball. It's called Dementia Talk, says Carol in Starkville. Where can I sign up for that job? I like video games. All you got to do is quit working, but I recommend you move from the state of Mississippi. You ain't going to get a lot. You could go to, uh, what do we say, Washington State or Massachusetts and get over six figures. New Jersey's in there as well, and then Minnesota comes in at 98 grand. That really is insane. We may get into that a little bit more of the details uh, tomorrow on the program. But we're out of time today. We're headed down to Carter Jewelers tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone.
Mississippi Media Production.